Today's episode of the Degenerate Business School is brought to you by the Robot Apocalypse, presaged by cinema since the 1980s, and interplanetary colonization, crucial to human survival since the advent of fossil fuels. Roberta! Gregory? We are here. We are. Again. It's Friday. Once again. The Lord's Day. No, it's not the Lord's Day. Pre-dinner edition of the Degenerate Business School. Episode 6. We've done it. We've reached episode 6, and we have about 24 listeners. It's very exciting. We're, we're coming on up in the world. I think so. Ben um, Simmons, watch your back. Ben Simmons? The Sorry. basketball player? Bill Simmons. <laughs> Fuck it. Ben Simmons, watch your back. Ben Simmons. In between in, in between in between my day job. Robert's Fed Chairman. NFL Point quarterback guard for the 76ers. <laughs> NFL Cube and Podcast Ingenue. Roberto Nunez. Um So I gotta I gotta be honest. I'm I'm upset. I'm upset about the taxes. The taxes are a real bummer this year. Yeah. Well, you, they're a bummer for you because in your degenerate tradecraft, you had to sell a bunch of your stocks in the short term to fund the purchase of your condo. I did. Which now has a billiards table in it. I did. I basically live in a 1920s dive bar. It's <laughs> phenomenal. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, my stock trading works. Um, not that I'm, you know this, I'm not one to generally carp about taxes as I am a uh, business-friendly socialist. Um which is an incompatible ideological position. But, but this but it, st- this state income tax cap in California is a real fucking bummer, man. <laughs> it's bullshit. It's regressive tax for the fucking rural farm peoples of America. Uh, Take it easy on them. They're, they're the only people not... Uh, they're the only ones who aren't going to be taken over by the robots eventually. That's true. On that score, should we get into the first topic of the week in Macroeconomics Corner? Let's do it. For any of our uh, listeners who dabble in the Wall Street Journal, they ran a spot today about how uh, the U.S. job market is strong to quite strong. A hundred consecutive months of job additions. Unemployment is edging to a 49-year low. So reaching a strong half a century mark. Wages and unemployment are up across nearly all segments of the population, as you said, except farm people, coal miners, and people who work work in textile mills. So basically, people who have somehow remained trapped in the 19th century. So here's the question, Berta. Uh, Sure, the jobs report is strong as the... uh, Next Fed chairman to succeed Jerome Powell. Is this the last apotheosis of human labor before the robots destroy everyone's job? Well, not everyone's job. Every job except the farmers, the coal miners. Okay, they're taking the coal miners. The farmers. No, the robots will take the farmers too. Yeah, I mean, to be honest with you, I I don't know of many jobs that a robot couldn't do. They could certainly do my job. They could probably do a better podcast, too. Well, let's let's explore this line of inquiry. 
No, no, no. They can do open. This is the whole reason we're doing the <laughs> podcast, Robert. It's so the robots don't take us out of existence. If this doesn't work, we're done. Okay. So you got, yeah, you have your, your menial, your menial service job. So this is the arena of the jobs market where at least in the service sector. So again, uh, and also variety. We'll leave aside the farm workers for now. Sure. Service sector sector jobs. Um, I think maybe if you haven't thought too deeply about this issue, people who are vulnerable, people who work in retail, for instance, uh, people who take your tickets at movie theaters, people who check your groceries at the grocery store. There will be a through line there later in the show. These are all potentially human jobs that will now be catered for by screens or robots uh, not particularly like an anthropomorphic robot, but a screen with some sort of vocal capacity to take your order at McDonald's. Right. And frankly, I think the only saving grace of a job like that is that there's some value to be had from human interaction, Mm -hmm. right? From a strictly economic perspective. Yeah. There's no reason a robot can't do that job, but if you value a simple hello, maybe, maybe it's worth keeping, but to what, at what cost? Yeah. The other, I think, there's another illustrative example that's in the article, which is vulnerable to automation, uh, which is also, um, there are still these, uh, will be gone, I guess, industrial jobs like welding. People are still doing welding. These seem quite vulnerable to automation and robotics. But the frontier that has not been crossed um, which artificial intelligence will allegedly accommodate are white collar jobs. So think of things like, I don't know, like data secretarial work, almost like things that, uh, in the past data entry, for instance, I don't know. I'm thinking of like the menial white collar fringe of the corporate economy. These are things that could be wiped out by robots potentially. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So fundamentally in this, uh, apocalyptic futurescape, where uh, you have the business elites on the one hand who want to automate all these retail workers out of existence and just go to a capital cost model, much like Lyft in the driverless car market because it's a fixed cost model, much better for profitability. Uh, Do you think, and now we're getting into the realm of Terminator here, when the business elite gets to this end state where they try to replace retail workers with robots, Will there be a popular uprising and a radical redistribution of wealth? I mean, to some extent, it are, I think it already exists. Well, definitely not the popular revolt. You just mean the business elites who have amassed an unwieldy amount of control over the capital that will make this automation revolution possible. Sure, but like if if you think about how much resistance there is to moving away from coal, mm-hmm. right? There is no reason other than there is a really strong coal lobby, but frankly, we shouldn't be dependent on it. It Which, shouldn't exist. Why, why is the coal lobby so strong? I mean, you, you gotta give the coal lobby credit for being as effective as it is. Cause it's got, it's like three guys from West Virginia, <laughs> spectacular, spectacular lobbying effort, punching above their weight class. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> but no, I mean, to some extent, I think a lot of people see the end is near for their industries, and it's just it's going to start falling one at a time. Well, let me ask you a more personal question, because although we try to stray from politics in this show, and I already uh, crossed that fourth frontier, 
at the beginning when I complained about the tax code tax code. But personally, when our jobs are automated out of existence, which right. let's just assume is inevitable, um, what would you like to see as the political settlement? A lot is made of the guaranteed income system. This would be like the only way to keep the proletariat in check if you're the business elites, right? Um, is a system like that where we all just have like a $1,000 a month subsidy from the government uh, and then you just podcast and do basket weaving all day. Is that an end state that appeals to you at all? No, no, not that at all. That sounds horrible. Um, I don't know. I think strictly as, as a matter of pride, I couldn't do it. But also... But th- this, this you have pride in. <laughs> <laughs> just, just enough. Just enough. <laughs> For me, the problem is $1,000 a month is not enough to support my degenerate gambling. So I, I need... True. Yeah. That's the through line in all of this. Yeah. Really, the biggest reason we have jobs is that we can do three-team parlays. We can trade in you know, the fake options market. We can do value investing. Yeah. Well, really, I think what you would do is you take your $1,000, use it degenerately, and then sleep in a box on the roadside. I mean, if it came to it, I, that's, you know, you have to do what you have you to have do. You have priorities. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's leave macroeconomics corner into the business realm. It's It was a slow to quite slow news week, so um, that's unfortunate. It is. But we are going to use a couple of headlines to zoom out on a couple of our favorite topics. We've referenced this in the past. The first one is, today, Amazon announces or it's revealed that they're set to launch a new grocery store train uh, chain that is basically going to coexist with Whole Foods. It's not going to be Whole Foods. It's going to be like Amazon Regional Grocer. The first one's going to start in LA and it's going to roll out to, you know, uh, basically major metro areas. <clears throat> but what, I ask you, Robert, is the point of all of this for Amazon? As I've asked before, why do things in the perishable physical world when you could be in the cloud? I don't want to be in the earth. I want to be in the cloud. And I, I hate this diversification. Make, make the case for me. Why is this a smart thing for Amazon to do? And then I'm just going to dunk on you for the rest of the show. No, I, I'm going to be honest with you. I, I don't understand it. Now, as you can probably guess from my saying I could be an NFL quarterback, I could beat Ben Simmons as a point guard for the Sixers, I could be Fed chair. I, I clearly could not be CEO of Amazon because I cannot wrap my head around this. It just it, it doesn't make sense to me. Or maybe you could be, and this is all <laughs> a fucking pipe dream. Maybe. It's, it's also an option. Um, no, honestly, this one I don't understand. I, I mean, you can make an argument that this isn't intended to drive profitability it's simply another tentacle so that amazon has a full grip on everyone's life sure it's a tentacular play um go yeah keep going but i mean how is this different than than whole foods frankly yeah i don't understand well to some degree you have to think is this an admission that the whole foods merger by itself they haven't figured out a way to integrate it with the ecosystem of Amazon into the broader octopus. I've been in a Whole Foods store a couple of times and I revile Whole Foods for for basically, you know, 
the page the the paycheck extraction it stands for. But I've gone into the store because I was curious to know, as a Prime <laughs> member, uh, what the integrations would look like. And it's kind of just like some cursory discounts. And even operationally, when they tried to roll that out and you use your Prime membership in Whole Foods, it didn't really work. So the whole merger is not seen any marginal gain as I can see it to either Amazon as an independent entity or Whole Foods as an independent entity. But I guess, to your point, what the constraint here is, is within the grocery store realm, right? It's perishable goods. There are other competitors like Walmart that have made it a thriving part of their e-commerce engine. This latest deployment from Amazon seems almost like an admission of failure that Whole Foods by itself is a point of integration with Amazon's value chain. And they're going to try to do something else. By the way, this is all some side bet fuckery on on Bezos's part. This is table stakes for him. Right. So that's where I go with all of this is, is this Bezos admitting that the Whole Foods transaction isn't exactly what they hoped it would be? Well, one of the, one of the things that stands out to me is earlier in the week, Warren Buffett said something to the effect of if he invests $10 billion in a company and, or $5 billion and he acquires 10% of the company, ultimately, even if tough beat for Warren, by the way, on crafty Heinz. Yeah. Yeah. Tough beat. Tough beat. Anyway. But in any case, what he was saying is if he acquires this, even if it sees substantial returns on a percentage basis, it isn't going to move the needle for his conglomerate of Berkshire Hathaway. Now, Amazon is one of the three biggest companies in the world. So by acquiring Whole Foods for $13 billion, I have to believe the expectations weren't that this was going to be some grand, you know, slam dunk that was going to, you know, take them to to another level. So to me, it supports the idea that it's just another tentacle of this octopus. Yeah, it's a lane of experimentation. I think where they probably faltered, though, is... Think about the people that shop at Whole Foods. There's such a selection bias among these hoity-toity, bourgeois, liberals that we know in Los Angeles that love to go to Whole Foods and pick their own avocados in person. They want to go, you know, get their raw almonds, but they want to select the bag themselves. These people use Amazon, doubtless, because everyone uses Amazon. But they use Amazon for cheap uh, non-perishable items because Amazon has built an aggregation monopoly on shit like that, but they're not going to sell you avocados at a markup. It's just not compatible with that business model or what Amazon is fundamentally valued for by consumers. Right. So so I think that's the misjudgment there. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Maybe, I mean, thinking this out, this parallel grocery store chain, maybe it's, Maybe they actually start to get more, a little more radical. They experiment with like price slashing on non-perishables. Then I think that could be interesting, right? No reason why you can't get your canned corn from Amazon Grocery, right? If that's something that you're into. Which I am. I am. <laughs> Which I am. <laughs> I love uh, corn. Uh, I think you sold me. Uh, Jeff Bezos. Uh, I get it I, now. I get it. I support your grocery store idea. Yeah, fuck that. <laughs> but the, the octopus is strong. The it's, octopus... It's quite strong. The, the octopus isn't going to go down from a single tentacle failing. All right. Let's pivot to another favorite star child in the tech sector. So 
Tesla uh, this week. They don't completely destroy it, but they complete. They almost accomplish the death of essentially their retail infrastructure for selling Teslas. And as background for people who don't know, what's interesting about Tesla already is that they have completely uh, given the middle finger to the conventional infrastructure of car dealership networks that in some states are basically mandated by law. So they were already kind of an outsider from that perspective, kind of taking like a high-end boutique retail approach. But now they're going to significantly draw down the number of locations and basically go to an online-only distribution model. So I ask you this, Robert. Uh, Oh, another piece of background that's important. The stated rationale for all of this is to cut costs and economize so that they can actually fulfill the promise of the Model 3 starting at $35,000. Thirty-five thousand dollars, and quote unquote, make a mass market offering. Although, as we know, out the door, that's still going to be a forty-five thousand dollars car. So we're still talking about bougie people. Robert, do we applaud its already radical approach to distribution getting more radical? Is this something that? Well, I think we're both kind of short on Tesla, just as a generalized shit show. Absolutely. But at the margins, is this something that you think makes sense, ultimately, just as an economic play? Uh, No. No. Um, Now, I I have sort of this love-hate relationship with Tesla in the sense that I I think it's inevitably going bankrupt because this is unsustainable. However, I do have to admire... Elon Musk as an absolute maniac. Oh, yeah. He's going hard in the paint. He's attacking the rim at every turn. Absolutely. So the fact that he made this Model 3 work, congrats to him. Is it helping the longevity of Tesla? No, not at all. Um, But also, to me, Tesla has long been more of a a luxury brand, something that bougie people can, can claim, oh, yeah, I drive a Tesla, and it means something. But if all of a sudden... You know, everybody and their mother could be driving a Tesla. It sort of loses that appeal. So then why buy a Tesla to begin with? Well, and this is where I think the idealism and the grandiosity of Elon, 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 (laughs) Elon, uh, is fundamentally incompatible with the business person of Elon. Mm -hmm. And to your point. If you are you if this is a classic pricing case like and you are Tesla and you're a premium brand, you benefit not one iota from lowering your prices. In the long term it's corrosion to your bottom line. Absolutely. Cuz people are are inelastic to your price point. You have this loyal following of bougie people who love to save the planet and look good while doing it. To your point making it low rent just corrodes the brand and makes it less likely for the bougie people to want to go buy it. Now, separately, and this is what the competing interest in Elon's mind is, he thinks he's saving the world by creating Tesla. So he wants the entire Earth to be covered with Teslas. This is a like, big dream, ultimately. Right, so you sort of have to think beyond the dollar and that this guy genuinely thinks he's... I mean, we're talking about... Let's zoom out for a second on Elon. Elon. I don't know why I keep... We should just Elon. That's better. Just embrace Elon. it. Elon. Embrace it. Elon, we're talking about a guy who, rightly, I think, like, he knows that if the human species, I mean, this is his biggest priority, the human species, A, number one, needs to be interplanetary to survive. 
ipso facto, SpaceX. Correct. Why do they need to be interplanetary? Because all civilizations at some point destroy themselves or are destroyed by external events. And if you're multiplanetary, then as a species, you can't go extinct. Or it decreases the likelihood you go extinct. Okay, that's priority number one from Elon, right? Right. Priority number two is, if this Earth of ours is at all salvageable, the best thing I can do is reduce emissions through creating a stylish car, I guess. So, through that prism... It is almost certain that in the car business, he will be an abject failure. Because for him, Tesla is ultimately a sideshow to this interplanetary ambition that he has. Correct. So go short, baby girl. Yeah, no. Look, I I wouldn't touch the stock, but I am very much interested to see them succeed if all all of his grandiose promises become true. I'm all for it. I just oh, don't think SpaceX, they will. If SpaceX goes public, I'm all in, baby. Because at the end of the day, all space exploration will just be funneled through his astronaut program. Yeah. And their suits are going to be so fly. It'll be like red suits, black trim. You know what I mean? It's going to be like a Darth Vader suit. And and I think he already sent a Tesla up there. So the first people, <laughs> the first people to land on Mars are going to be styling. Oh, sty- sure. styling hard. For sure. Well, then maybe if they get to Mars to drive the space Tesla, then it turns around Tesla, the failing business. I see. Okay. So yeah, this it, is it, all it, a great it's all, Yeah, it's all... It's a virtuous cycle. All right. Uh, I guess we can move to Robert's Degenerate Stock Tip Corner. So, let's be clear on the rule book here, <laughs> shall we? Okay, let's right. do it. We have said in the past, because there's a blemish in your record this week. There is. And listen, uh, no one bats a thousand. I, I think that's why I was a little more humble this week by, by saying I couldn't. I couldn't lead Amazon. I think last week I would have said, uh, "Step aside." Fuck yes, <laughs> fuck yes, Bezos. I can run your damn company. This week I'm a little more humble. So again, by the by the the law book here, we don't count win or loss for you until you get out of the position that you're in. Correct. Correct. Okay. So. But, you know, let's simplify it for people. You're currently in four recommended positions, true? Uh, I have recommended four positions. I did close one. You've recommended four positions. Okay, you've closed one, yes. But the four positions you were in as of last week, P&G, Cisco, Aurora Cannabis, and EEM. Correct. Okay. Against that portfolio, you're three and one. And the marker here is beating the S&P, keep me honest. Correct. All right. You are out of your P&G position and mad victorious, and you're going to tell us why in a second. The only one you're down on is EEM, but in fairness to you, in, in fairness, fairness to me, you, yes. you did say it's a value play, it's going to be a bit of a ride, so you're not getting out of the position, you Never. just lost a little ground this week. So let's start with P&G. Give P- us the final report card. P&G. I sold out of P&G on Monday, and it's not because I don't think it's going higher. I just think from a technical perspective, it's facing some, some resistance. I think that $100 marker is hard to cross. Um, it was due for a pullback, and we did actually see that this week. Uh, so I may consider getting back in, in in the next couple of weeks, but I did close out on Monday. Uh, the stock was up 6.5% at the time. Uh, the S&P was up 5.2, and the option was up 36%. Atta baby! So, modest by my standards, but a win nonetheless. 
Um, Cisco. Another reason why you're humble. You're used to returns of 100, 200, 4,000%. Yeah, I, I was, but, you know, I, I wasn't giving weekly updates on them. So I, I don't want to tell you buy Cisco and then just repeat myself for the next 12 weeks. Sure, fair enough. In any case, uh, Cisco this week. Uh, up 8.9% from where I bought it. The S&P up 39 mm-hmm. so hard win on that one. Uh, the options currently up 40%. Spectacular. And this one I'm, I'm holding on for dear life because this is, this is going higher for sure. Um, Aurora Cannabis. I was, Spectacular I was, beta. I was sweating a little bit last week. Bounces around. Uh, yeah, so normally... Like I, a dodgeball. Normally, I get my beta via the option by betting on low beta stock. Here, I'm betting beta on beta. That's so, called beta squared. Yeah. Beta O'Rourke. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I was sweating a bit last week. This week, I'm doing a little bit better. Uh, Aurora Cannabis up 5.5% versus the S&P up 1%. Uh, the option up 14%. Had been up a lot more yesterday, but it was a down day, so. It's all right. If we catch you on a good day next Friday. Yeah. Could be 100. Could be. And then EEM. Um, EEM's not, not doing great. Uh, it's down 1.3%. Uh, the S&P is up 0.4%. The option is down 7%. Now, to your point, I did say this was going to be uh, a little bit more of a long play because... There's two things going for it. Um, and one, we sort of have to take what Jay Powell says with a grain of salt. Right? Jerry! If interest rates go lower and it weakens the dollar, that bodes well for emerging markets. Certainly. And two, from a technical perspective, um, this did cross above the 200-day moving average in a bullish manner. Gotta so love that. Technicals are there. The fundamentals are there. Um, it's just not going to be an easy ride, but uh, I'm holding on to it. So currently, I do have three positions, Cisco, Aurora, and EEM. I was looking at that, too. The 200-day moving average gives me strong optimism here. Yeah. Now, Robert, uh, I would like to declare to everyone, you are not, not technically, you are technically undefeated, but 3-1 and one in your recommendations if we're just doing a weighted game. Let's okay. do it. All right. I, however... I'm undefeated. I told you last week I'd give you an update on the MJ, Alternative Harvest ETF, which I cannot buy because I'm not getting out of Merrill Edge. Whatever. I'm not a dyed-in-the-wool degenerate. You are. But had you listened to me on February 8th, here's what you might have enjoyed. Okay? That ETF, just by itself, up 8%. The S&P is up 2.8%. You're welcome, America. Want to know. Undefeated. All and I can't ever claim a victory or loss because I never bought it myself. All I'm saying is my EEM pick is running a mile and a half. It's not a quarter horse. It's a long-distance horse. It rides, it rides in the back until that last quarter mile. And as we all know, you live your life quarter, quarter mile, mile at a time. time. <laughs> all right. Uh, as always, you're welcome, America. You're welcome, America. All right. Farewell. Farewell. Farewell.